I want to see Nola. I want to see my wife now. You know she's still undergoing intensive therapy. I can't let you break that isolation. Well, my daughter's been beaten. Severely. And scratched and bitten. Her mother did it. Her mother, who's under your psychiatric care. To take Candace away from her at this stage, would send none of them into the deep end. Why was the mommy and the husband so much? Well, someday she would wake up and she would be covered with big, ugly bumps. The doctors were very worried because they could never find out what those bumps all over her skin really were. First thing you need to know about the brood is it takes place in a very chilly Canada. That's like the main impression of the film is very like cold. Everyone's in big bulky jackets. And uh, this guy, Frank, um, he and his wife, uh, Nola, are are estranged. Uh, his, his wife is in a special therapy group run by Oliver Reed's character, Dr. Hal. Um, and he doesn't get to to talk with her that much. Uh, it's kind of a um, new age therapy, uh, and Oliver Reed, uh, or sorry, Doctor Hal, is kind of this wonderkind. Uh, he's he's this uh, he's got this magic touch that he can break down people. Um, Frank is a little bit kind of roll his eyes at this, but he is taking care of their daughter, Nola, and Frank's daughter. Um, while his wife is trying to get help. And strange things start to happen, um, and these uh, little creatures start showing up places and attacking people. Um, and s suddenly one day, uh, Frank's daughter is taken, and he is convinced that something is going on at this therapy center, and uh, he tries to get his wife out of therapy and uh, no no you can't she's in a critical time in her therapy and uh, 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 what uh, the ending of this is basically him uh, storming this this therapy compound to get his daughter and uh, wife back but uh, more interested in the daughter and uh, uh, all hell breaks loose so that's that's kind of my my mini summary of the brood. Hello and welcome back to Screamatics. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Andrew Merrill talking about David Cronenberg's 1979 horror classic, The Brood. Mr. Merrill is a filmmaker whose upcoming feature, Rot, is a must-see for fans of that early Cronenbergian horror. 
So, Mr. Merrill, I've seen your film. I'd like to talk about it later, but I have to say, after watching it, I, I think I understand why you went with the Cronenberg film to discuss. But, uh, but nevertheless, I'll ask, as I do with every episode, out of any horror movie you might have chosen, any at all, why go with David Cronenberg's The Brood? Well, I think The Brood was uh, on my mind because uh, I started working on Rot years ago, and I always used The Brood as reference, but I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. So I was like, you know, this is actually a good time, good excuse to revisit The Brood because there, there's something, there's something magical about early Cronenberg where these fantastical, horrifying things happen to regular people in in a very real world the 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 world the setting is not fantastical and that was my main i was so drawn to that that you know these these horrible stories taking place in a very real world with real people dealing with them in in unheroic uh sometimes selfish uh sometimes uh, brutal ways, and I, I kind of am always fascinated by by Cronenberg's view of the world. Now, where's that line for you when it comes to you know we talk about early Cronenberg? Where do you think he sort of leaves that kind of uh, approach behind in his filmography? Because I think you know looking at all of his movies, even when he kind of leaves horror behind, you know with. Uh, well, sure, even M. Butterfly early on, but it seems like a history of violence is kind of that moment where he fully stepped out of the genre, and who knows if we'll ever get him back. But, um, you know, all of those movies share kind of similar thematic concerns, but I'm wondering, as far as approach goes, where is that line for you between early Cronenberg and then whatever it was that he became, you know, later on? You know, I kind of, I almost see it as... I, I, I feel like everything after Naked Lunch. I and I, I don't there's nothing there's nothing um I don't know. I, I don't have a strong reason for this. I just think that there's something so uh wrong <laughs> about like naked lunch and like the fly and videodrome and scanners and there's 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 just something about all of those films that feel so the worlds feel so lived in and and kind of dirty. I, I mean, I could definitely be swayed that uh, you know his his uh, early period ends either later or earlier. But I I that 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 run up until Naked Lunch, I have a really uh, soft spot for, especially The Fly. I mean, The Fly is all time classic. You know, falling off dick in a jar, like amazing stuff. <laughs> The Burn the Fly Museum. I love it. Um, yeah, no, I would agree with you. I mean, after Naked Lunch, we get M. Butterfly, which is, in many ways, like, you can see where it's totally an extension of his work thematically, but but so far as genre goes, like, that's definitely not of a piece with his earlier stuff. And then we have Crash, which is kind of much the same. I don't know if Crash is even, you know, can you even categorize what that movie is? But then, you know, he did in 99, I will say, he did Existence, which felt like a return to his earlier work a bit. You know, it felt like he was kind of swimming in the same waters, uh, you know, that he did with Videodrome. But then really after that, I mean, you know, Spider, A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, um, oh, uh, A Dangerous Method. A Dangerous Method. method. I, and I'm not, I'm definitely not bashing 
A history of violence is great. I personally really like a dangerous method. I know a lot of people kind of uh, shrug it off as as his least Cronenberg movie. Uh, I I thought Dangerous Methods was really good. Um, so I, I'm definitely not bashing his later stuff. I'm just saying that the I I have a fondness for. I mean, primarily the the late '70s, early uh, the whole '80s run. I mean, Dead Ringers is wild and after you see dead, dead ringers you see that influence so many movies i mean how often do you see the medical garb all in red show up and you're just like no oh, that you know there it is <laughs> no i agree with you. you know it's funny i a dangerous method i don't necessarily have an issue any issues with at all and i actually really love a history of violence and eastern promises and both of those movies in their own way are kind of about transformation in their own right just not in a in a gooey body horror sort of way. But the only movie of his that I never really fully connected with was Com Cosmopolis. You know, that's the only one that's kind of like, I can't connect with that much. And I'll admit to my shame, uh, as much of a Cronenberg fan as I am, and I am, I have yet to see Maps to the Stars. I even own it. I just haven't gotten around to watching it yet. Oh, I, I you know, I'm not going to claim to have seen all of his movies. There are definitely big uh, blank spots. And I, I have also not seen, um, uh, a maps to the stars or Co cosmopolis or existence existence. I, I, God, I didn't say that right. Um, would you recommend that one? Yes. Yeah, I absolutely would. That is the, <laughs> this is going to sound weird to say that is totally the last Cronenberg with the capital C movie that we got from him you know and even for you know i think spider is really interesting i love a history of violence i love eastern promises but existence is the movie that feels like a natural extension of his earlier work and then you know beyond that you know if you kind of want to scratch that itch like you got to look to his son's work you know after that in a weird way um i but... love how his movies uh start off heading in one direction and you think the movie is going to be about that. And then it takes, it, it, it seems like every, every, you know, sequence, he, he kind of finds a new aspect of the story that interests him. I'm thinking of, of like the dead zone or, you know, it's where, you know, you, you think it's going one way and then it just kind of keeps the story just keeps kind of shifting a little bit. And the brood is the same way where, you know, you're, you're not, you're you're kind of lost with the characters for most of it, and you don't quite know where this is going. And I I always loved that. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, you know, what's great about him, as crazy as those stories can be, you know, you always get the sense that the man is in control of the story that he's telling. It never feels chaotic, you know. As as crazy as the brood gets, even in that final ten minutes, it's told with such a sure hand. And, uh, you know, I love that about his work. Uh, I do think, you know, I'm curious what you think about this. I remember, um, you know, we've only had one previous Cronenberg film on this podcast before. Guest uh, Stephanie Crawford chose The Fly to discuss. And, you know, uh, as a fan of Cronenberg, what do you make of some reviewers and fans even kind of leveling this criticism against them? That, you know, this is something that we discussed on The Fly, you know, but I'm, I'm curious about your take. What do you think about this criticism leveled against him that his films are often quite cold and clinical? Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious what your take on that is because I, you know, I'd heard that so many times when I was uh, just getting into his work, and I'm not sure that it's actually borne out by the work itself. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I even started my description of the brood talking about cold, but I was meaning more uh, weather-wise, and, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I I understand that because. Um, but I think that part of it is the uh, that the movies take place in the real world, and then the incidents in these in the in this real world setting is so heightened that it's almost it it does. I do I do see, and I and I let me back up. I do not think it is a bad thing. In much the same way that people claim that Kubrick is cold. I think that that is a unique viewpoint and to almost be watching these characters circle the drain uh, and watch their own mistakes and their own um, character flaws get in the way of them actually making the right choice, I think is fascinating. And I think that that draws me more into the movies. So I, I do not think quote unquote cold filmmaking where the, the, the audience is kind of held a little bit at arm's distance. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, and I, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting argument to make, but I, I, I think that that's what I love about him and, and uh, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. I, you know, whenever I, this was around the time, this was around 97 when I first, you know, started getting into his work. And so this was right around the time that crash came out. And, uh, you know, weirdly enough, that was one of the first movies of his that I'd ever seen. And so I maybe get that with crash, you know, maybe, but the rest, like to me, oftentimes his movies just burn to me. It seems like this one, like the, you know, does he film the violence? somewhat dispassionately okay maybe you know sure maybe maybe the rest of the movie does seem rather clinical and how it's presented even but to me the performances and the story and the point of the movie like this the brood is not a cold film you know this is not a looking at Cronenberg it's not a cold filmography when one looks at it in its entirety I don't think you know even for even for its kind of measured presentation well, do you? Here's a question for you. Do you think that it's partially that um, he sets up these characters, and then something twisted or disturbing happens, and the character, instead of looking away, backing away, he kind of jumps in feet first and wants to get up and cl up close and personal with this this darkness. Uh, and maybe that's Cronenberg's fascination seeping through. Whereas, you know, most movies, the audience surrogate acts a little bit more safe and kind of shies away from that ugliness. Do you think that that's partially why people don't relate? Like some people don't relate to his movies and others do is that most people would turn away from that kind of gross body horror and he's fascinated with it. No, I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, you know, in in most movies like that, your leads will retreat. They'll run in the opposite direction. It is a threat. You're right, I think, that most of Cronenberg's leads, they there's a pursuit there. 
you know, there, there's a pursuit of knowledge or to know more or to see more. You know, you look at, um, well, obviously, even the, in the case of the brood, I think we have a father who obviously just wants to get control of his daughter, you know, custody of his daughter back. But there, there's, he, he still drives forward, as it were, as opposed to retreating. And, you know, you look at uh, characters in, I mean, Max Ren and Videodrome, you look at uh, Johnny in the Dead Zone, you look at, uh, obviously, uh, Brundle, uh, the twins in Dead Ringers, uh, ob- of course, Ballard and Crash. Like, those are people who are running headlong into what most other characters would perceive as danger, you know? But they, and- they just, they have to see and they have to know, and I love that about his work. I mean, even in The Fly, you have, you know, he's like overjoyed that this transformation is happening. He, he, you know, it's an exciting adventure. Uh, and, and Gina Davis is horrified. <laughs> She's like, this is awful. And he's like, ah, eh, no, I'm, I'm like, this is even better than I was before. Uh, and I, I think most people are like, I can't relate to this at all. <laughs> Do you think then that that's maybe one of the reasons that The Fly is most accessible to people? Because not only do we have the, the quote unquote, like Cronenberg man in, uh, in Brundle, but we also have an audience surrogate there right alongside him saying like, um, we should be afraid. We should be very afraid. You know, like, I, I, I wonder if that's why it's so easy for people to accept that movie when maybe they're not so ready to accept others, even though the fly is one of his gooeyest, most horrific films. And, 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 you know, most movies welcome the audience in and they say, you are going to feel how these characters are feeling. And I feel like a lot of Cronenberg movies, he is putting his emotion into the movie and is welcoming us to see it. And, you know, on IMDb, they talk about you know, one of the trivia points is that, you know, he wrote The Brood while he was going through a divorce, you know, and you can feel that anger from the character and that that disgust and that, you know, loneliness. And um, so, but it's not, it's not necessarily interested with the audience feeling that it's, you're watching a very sad person trying to navigate the next chapter of his life. And I, yeah, I, I, I find that very interesting. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, watching this movie too, with that character who is obviously the, the Cronenberg surrogate, like, uh, seeing David Cronenberg in other movies or listening to him in interviews, he can he can almost come off sometimes as a little bit cold, you know? And yet, I don't think... But like... Just because he is kind of measured in his approach to subject matters that anybody else, again, might run away shrieking from, you know, it, he there's still a humanity to them. You know, it, it's not... Maybe sometimes cold, okay, sure, but never alien. Unless it's an actual alien. But even them, they, then they show up and they've got some personality to them. Absolutely. No, I mean, you know, it, it, Cronenberg comes off as a very dry, um, soft-spoken at times individual. And I, I was just thinking about those, you know, I, I have friends like that where, like, if you don't know them and you don't take the time to know them then they seem very dull. But the more you hang around them, you start to pick up on their little idiosyncrasies. And uh, uh, I think that that's why the more time you spend with Cronenberg, 
the more you pick up on those little things and it feels less cold to you because it's a world you know and love. No, I agree. And, you know, maybe cold is the wrong word to explain how he comes off sometimes. Like he's very – I've actually watched interviews with him. There's this recent interview that went up maybe, uh, I want to say, a year or two years ago. Uh, I, I can't really gauge time anymore, this being 2020. It might have been a decade ago. Who knows? But he's, he's very funny. Like he is, he's actually very, very funny, but it's a very dry kind of humor. So, uh, which, you know, even though the lead character in The Brood is, again, kind of a surrogate, is there anything that strikes you about that performance or that character where you can say, oh, that's Cronenberg? You know, I think that um, it is a very serious character on the, on the, the, the surface. And I, I, Hmm, I don't know. That, that's an interesting question. Uh, I I don't know how to answer it's, that. It's not that he has to be, because obviously it's more the situation that was autobiographical rather than the characters themselves. I think in Cronenberg on Cronenberg, he even said, you know, the uh, the characters are essentially movie versions of himself and his ex-wife. But, I, you know, it's it's interesting to me. Cronenberg, to me, is such a unique personality that I'm surprised that the actor in this case didn't try to replicate that a little bit in this performance you know what i mean well yeah and you know what i what i find interesting about the character is that you can feel the tension um that he that, that he and his ex-wife have even though they don't share a scene until the end of the movie you, you can feel his kind of frustration with dealing with her and yet he does try and respect her therapy and he is like involved somewhat like he was watching the therapy session at the beginning trying to like understand you know what his wife is going through and kind of rolling his eyes at it but then when the doctor's like oh you know you can't disturb her this is a critical time he kind of respects that or or, or at least listens to it um and you can tell that that there is sadness but he's just kind of very stoic and like not overtly emotional about it and i i find that very interesting it's very uh, it it feels authentic to what a person in that situation would go through and i kind of i i immediately am more drawn to that kind of character that feels honest and authentic than some of the more traditional hollywood films where you know, you've got your very clear save the cat moment and, you know, they write out all of their positive attributes in bold letters. <laughs> um, what would Cronenberg do with a cat, do you think? I think we already know, you know, it's we've seen the fly. He would put the cat in the transporter. Yeah, no, yeah. The cat would definitely have more limbs and genitalia <laughs> and all of that. All of the things that you don't want to see in a cat would be on the outside and the fur would be on the inside. No, I would, that would, that would, yeah, he's, I don't think David Cronenberg has ever saved the cat. No, <laughs> no, he, he's done terrible things to the cat. <laughs> and we love him for it. And we, yeah, absolutely. I, and you know what? I, it's interesting. The first time I watched The Brood, I remembered thinking more that it was cold, you know, more that it was a little bit slower paced. And the second time I watched it, um, 
it definitely feels way more human to me, way less weird. Um, and it's, and it's strong emotions, internal emotions that are externalized. And I, um, I found it way faster paced the second time and was enjoying the ride way more than the first time. I enjoyed it the first time. And the second time I had way more fun watching it. And I was actually more scared the second time, um, knowing where it was going and knowing the, the descent into darkness that he was going to be taking. I, the, the, the little children that she is, is, uh, birthing, uh, were were creepier to me uh and how he filmed them that scene in the kitchen where it's kind of you see them but you don't see them and you you kind of like they're out of focus or they're very much in focus but you can't quite get a clear shot of their face um i i found way more thrilling um on repeat viewings and uh how he filmed those those action scenes are so visceral. I that's one where I'd push back against the cold feeling because I you definitely feel like you're there feeling every blow of the it looked like a meat pounder, a meat hammer, uh, uh, bashing in and crushing the skull. Um, I uh, I found it I found it even more effective the second time through. And that's another thing that I appreciate is that because it's so weird, the first viewing of any Cronenberg film, you're kind of throttled a little bit. It's like he's grabbing you a little bit and shaking you. And the second time or and after, you can really appreciate the subtler details that are in the film and the masterful camera camera work. Uh, it really is uh, quite exciting to see how he frames and executes action and uh and even the regular drama of it yeah i agree and I, I i think that's probably true of a lot of his movies where you know that first viewing is more about getting a handle on what the movie is because you know it, it's kind of impossible in a way to have expectations for a cronenberg movie if you've seen any of his previous films you you don't know what to brace for you don't know what to expect it's always going to be something new and so those initial viewings, it's more about exploration. You're not watching the movie. You're just kind of letting it happen to you. So it's not until a second or third viewing where you can really take it in and enjoy it for what it is once your expectations are in place. I think I agree with you on that. I, you know, it's funny, though. You mentioned early on about the internal being externalized. You know, Cronenberg has talked about transformation in his films before. You look at The Fly or Scanners or even Crash or A History of Violence or Recent Promises and... Yeah, and that's not all. You know, you have characters who are undergoing or have undergone some sort of significant transformation. But there's also this idea that he's wrestled with when, you know, when it comes to disease being something creative rather than destructive. You know, creative cancer, he called it in uh, Cronenberg on Cronenberg. And that's, that's definitely true of Videodrome and The Fly and others. But that idea seems to originate in his works with this film, I think, with the... Uh, you know, the shape of rage and psychoplasmics and, you know, the brood themselves. But I was wondering, what do you make of that? Not just in this film, but in all of his work, you know, at first Raglan's ideas, you know, Hal Raglan, Dr. Hal, you know, his, his ideas seem to have merit. You know, you have this way to 
purge all of this negativity and stress and rage via your own body. And that seems to be a good thing. You know, don't, don't keep all of that stuff bottled up, you know, that sort of thing. But what's on display here is a method to deal with one's mental illness in a way that's actually physically destructive. You know, somebody has a wicked rash, another person has cancer, uh, uh, <laughs> yet another bears a number of killer children to do her bidding. Uh, so yeah, do, do, do you think Cronenberg is advocating for repression in a way for not dealing head on with one's own buried issues? Because I mean, here in this movie, look at the results when one does try to confront these things in his world. Oh, you know, it's, it's so funny that it, it feels like he's of two. He's like, it, it sometimes feels like he's disdainful of therapy where, but at the same time, he thinks it's absolutely necessary that we need to, fix the wrongdoings of the past. I mean, even a dangerous method, his most recent one, he's still going back to that well over and over again of people that were horribly damaged when they were younger and they're still uh, suffering the consequences of it. Um, yeah, I. it is interesting that he makes you... Uh, you kind of buy into Oliver Reed, which I think part of that is just Oliver Reed is so powerful. I, re I, I think I saw him first in, well, obviously Gladiator, but like the Devils. And I was just like, this guy is such a powerful presence that he could probably convince anyone to do anything. It's that voice and how he commands the room. I mean, the brood opens with just a single shot on him and a single shot on, on his patient. And it's just him talking to this guy. And I don't know how long it is, but it's definitely m more than a minute or two of just Oliver Reed talking. Uh, and yeah, I think I'm off topic here. I, I got distracted by how well, great Oliver Reed was. <laughs> there, there is no, so, okay. So the thing about scream addicts is, no such thing as off topic. In fact, <laughs> if, we, if we don't go off topic, if we don't veer wildly away from the uh, the movie at hand, then we've kind of failed. So please, you know, I talking about Oliver Reed's filmography is totally par for the course with this uh, with this podcast. And I agree with you. Oliver Reed is uh, it's funny on <laughs> so Scream Addicts, the main podcast is is pretty much this. You know, and I invite on a creative and a horror. They choose a single movie they love, and we talk about it at length. We're currently, myself and uh, co-host Paul Farrell, we're doing this um, side project called, uh, it was initially called Getting Hammered with Hammer, now it's called Hammer Pub, wherein we basically have drinks and do running commentaries for Hammer movies. And we recently did The Curse of the Werewolf, and that was one of Reed's first movies. We'd previously done uh, oh, Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, which he had appeared in for a moment too. And even at such a young age, you're right, I mean, he... The, the guy is intensity personified, you know, like he can be charming, he can be magnetic, but at the same time, you, I, th there is an intensity to every performance that's just absolutely, I think, enthralling. And I, I think Cronenberg was so smart to open the brood on him because, you know, he, he completely sells you on the idea in seconds, you know, uh, who, who wouldn't want to try psychoplasmics if, uh, if Oliver Reed was going to be the guy who's going to talk you through it. Cause you, you trust him his voice and how measured he is you you trust him so thoroughly and when he even at the end when he's like uh don't go in there the main character even is like okay i'm gonna listen to this guy i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna go in there um because 
it's so funny. The, the, the main character, uh, Frank, shows up at the end of the movie and basically is, like, storming, you know, he's breaking onto this compound to, like, grab his daughter, runs into Dr. Hal, who is supposedly this, you know, evil therapist in his mind, and then... Dr. Howell's like, this is what's happening. This is, you know, you know, don't go in because they're connected to her. Uh, I'm going to help you. And he just, he doesn't argue. He just is like, okay. And you're like, of course, because it's Oliver Reed. Well, you also get the feeling, too, with Oliver Reed, you know, that if you did cross him, he could probably snap you like a twig. Like, he seems yeah. like a very powerful dude, you know? I, I don't know if he was or not, but... uh I mean, the, and this is something we talked about on a previous podcast, too, but the fact that he went out uh, drinking a bunch of guys under a table and then arm wrestling and beating guys half of his age, and then, you know, he passed away shortly thereafter of a heart attack. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> how, what, what more badass way to go out for a guy like that? I mean, that's, yeah. that's incredible. So, um, yeah, you know, I, with how you look at, like, his relationship with Nola and what he's trying to do, and I... Part of me wants to believe that his goals with psychoplasmics and, you know, the shape of rage and everything is altruistic. Like he does want to better humanity. He was want, he does want to advance this, but at the same time, I'm kind of pissed at him because when he finds his one star, you know, uh, not pupil, but certainly a patient in NOLA, he sort of shuns everybody else and he sends them away. Now there's the idea that, you know, maybe he's doing that to protect them. You know, because he realizes what a threat she's become, but they don't know that. And so that to me seems like the most damaging possible thing you could do to a patient is saying essentially like, uh, I'm busy with, I'm busier with somebody else right now. You need to go, you know? Yeah, no, it is. It is. And that, this goes back to the characters are flawed. I think Dr. Hal a thousand percent believes in what he's doing. I think he believes that he is helping these people. And in some ways he might be. Um, but <laughs> uh, you're right. It, it's, it's, un, it's not really defined whether he is doing it to help the patients and is just so preoccupied he doesn't think about how cutting them off cold turkey is going to harm them. Or if he is just so obsessed with this idea that he can heal them, this God complex, um, that maybe he is selfishly just, you know, taking after his, his prize pupil. Um, but at the end, there is a turn there for him where he, he does realize that he's made a mistake. And it's interesting that we see him after he's realized that he made a mistake and we don't really get to see that, that, that shift in him. Um, but he does redeem himself at the end, uh, at least somewhat, by by saving the girl. Um, even if, yeah, it's 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 a weird, it's a it's such a weird movie, which is why I love it. Is like it it doesn't spell everything out, which I think Cronenberg avoids like the plague. He and that's why his movies are so rich to go back time and time again, and you're gonna catch something new come to some new conclusion, there's so much there to dig into after watching a Cronenberg film that that's why Cronenberg is who he is. That's why his films have such lasting appeal. No, I agree entirely. I, I do, you know, <laughs> you mentioned Noah a moment ago. I Maybe 
the one major thing that bugs me about the movie, and not in a bugs is the wrong word to say. Certainly, uh, not every movie. N- n- I think a movie with some rough edges is perfectly fine. I think that that's the filmmaker. You know, the, a film that has some rough edges means that it doesn't have a lot of studio interference, right? Like it's preserved both the positive qualities of of the filmmaker and some of the negative flaws. Uh, so sorry to interrupt, but like, I think that no, it's no. perfectly fine to be bugged by things in movies you love. No, I, I agree with that entirely wholeheartedly. I, I think it's, you know, I, there's this kind of disturbing trend and we don't have to get into it unless you want to. Uh, but there's this disturbing trend recently where, you know, it seems like movies have to uphold our own, morality and movies have to uphold our, our own ideals and then that means that the characters have to too which means that everybody kind of has to be perfect or at least perfectly suited into white hats and black hats and that's something like that i just don't agree with at all in art you know i i think that it, it's far more interesting to present flawed people and flawed ideals and you know uh Amorality or immorality. I agree a hundred percent. I really do think that uh, it's there's there's such a where I I feel like we're in a, a dark time in studio films where it is played so safe and there it it is so black and white uh, a lot of times and um I love that Cronenberg presents it at, you know he's just like eh life's kind of weird and fucked up and gross and uh, we're all living in it. So, you know, let's just, you know, make movies about it. Yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. And so, so that's not right for me to say something bugs me about the movie. It's more something that kind of leaves me wrestling with it, which I think is far more positive, uh, positive spin on it. It is, is much more true, I think, but yeah, with Nola, you know, I, I, I know that Cronenberg was drawing, from his own life. And, you know, in, in Cronenberg, I keep referencing the same book, but in Cronenberg on Cronenberg, I, I read about this account, you know, of, of his first wife just wanting to take his daughter away from him after their divorce. And he practically had to kidnap his daughter before the mother ultimately just, you know, gave up her custody entirely. And I'm sure that was a really fraught situation for him. But, you know, I... It, it reminded me in a weird way on this rewatch, you know, much like the ending of that uh, that kind of recent horror film, Lights Out. I don't know if you've seen it, but it it I'll, I'll be honest, it bums me out maybe a little bit that the movie does such a great job of setting up this character who is not just a straightforward villain. She's not really a villain at all. She's somebody who is obviously struggling with mental illness and has such a sad, dark background and the movie's ultimate resolution, the only way to deal with this person, is for them to die. Now, I know it's just a movie, and I know it was probably really cathartic in a way for Cronenberg to have his screen counterpart strangling his wife's movie stand into death. I get it, but as a viewer, do you find that troubling at all? I never had before, admittedly, but this time around, like, yeah, it it, it kind of got to me in a weird way. You know, I think that we have to remember that these filmmakers are pouring their souls. You know, I think the good ones, the good ones, you you know, Cronenberg can look at the brood and forever know exactly how he felt at that time going through that situation. And he may even be repulsed by 
what his character does. You know, oh, you know, maybe he should have, like, tried to help her in some other way. Um, but that's how he felt. That's how he like, felt. I did like early on uh, in your introduction that you more or less pointed out that uh, the, the, the storm on the compound, as it were, you know, the... the... <laughs> <laughs> the attack on the compound, it was, you know, the mission was kind of ex-wife optional, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess I guess Storm the Compound sounds much more dramatic than a, a single person, you know, <laughs> <laughs> strolling in. <laughs> in his um, mind, that's totally what's happening, I would like to Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I get what you're saying, and I, it is interesting to to end a movie and kind of wrestle with actions that the main character has done um and the wife does not get any sort of redeeming you know not even a shot you know right before she dies of you know i'm sorry or she realizes the you know physical monster she's become um but um that's it's almost the wife is also cronenberg right like the wife is feeling things and the creatures that she births react to that feeling and she's not in control of how she feels she just is a you know an id monster she just feels something and and things happen in response to that and you know the filmmaker is very much the same way he's made this movie and things kind of i i imagine that this was a journey for him where things he did not line up things perfectly and then like, okay, I need this to happen. I need this to happen. I bet he just let the film take him where he, where it would go. And that's where it, it took him. So no, I, I, I get it. And I, if every movie was like this, I'd be like, Oh man, I'd love you know some redeeming uh, qualities for the bad guy at the end. But I think for this one, it's such a personal film. I think it's kind of beautiful to see that, that pain and frustration uh on the screen and it kind of is a release for people going through that i think that if if i was going through a divorce uh or i was in a custody battle for a child i feel like this movie would be very cathartic i i'd be like yeah that's that's how i'm feeling right now and that's that's my rage uh and i i think that's beautiful that that's the the power of movies is that it can transport you into someone else's hell uh and make you stronger feel stronger and more alive uh, or it can uh resonate with you and and make you feel seen in ways that uh you know you might not have no absolutely i agree i agree entirely. and plus you know i guess i should point out too that even even something that leaves you feeling that way like i like i said it, it you know that kind of bugged me that it kind of got under my skin it kind of like concerned me in a way but that doesn't mean that the movie is bad. That doesn't mean that the movie is malicious or is going to do damage. It's a horror movie. You should probably leave a horror movie, especially a thoughtful one such as this one, feeling a little unnerved. You know, leaving with questions that you have to wrestle with after. So, uh, and for that, I, I, I think this is this is one of the great horror movies, and I think it's one of the best movies in his filmography. Well, I, and actually, just to. Um... Uh, I guess ca counterpoint. Um, I think that they the film does show that the wife is concerned about the daughter and keeps trying to call him. But whatever treatment Doctor Hal is putting her through, uh, 
is slowly eating away at her mind. So, you know, you could argue that if she had just gone to a regular therapist, uh, maybe, you know, things would have turned out much differently. Um, and also Frank probably should have gone to a therapist as well, but that's a, that's a different story altogether. But yeah, I think, no, I, I, think I think the movie, right. <laughs> it does, it does prevent, present some evidence that when she's not under the treatment, she kind of is a little bit more self-aware and maybe a little bit more concerned about what's going on. No, I agree. And plus, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with the movie being a tragedy either. And from her point of view, like it, it, that's totally what it is. You know, she is somebody who was, you know, she had her own demons to fight. She's not the movie's lead, but you can imagine a version of the story where she might've been. And, you know, just, just because she had her own demons to fight and just because she lost that battle doesn't kind of undermine her humanity, you know? Um, and I, I do love that Cronenberg, do you not get the sense at some points in this movie that he made this not just in a way to wrestle with this, obviously the, the situation that he was dealing with. I mean, he often called it his, uh, his version of Kramer versus Kramer, but it also feels like there are moments where he is trying to understand where his ex-wife was coming from too. You know, like he was part of the movie feels like it's reaching out and trying to understand in that way. I think that any great filmmaker tries to empathize with all characters and tries to understand where they're coming from. So, yeah, I think that, you know, people use art uh, to process their feelings and to understand the world better. And I, I yeah, yeah, I could definitely see a, a, an argument that he was trying to understand his ex-wife and his ex-wife's position. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I love it. Now, I got to say, I, we're, we're coming up on the hour mark here shortly. I did, if you don't mind terribly, I would love to talk about your future first. Now, this is not a movie that's available just yet. At the time that this uh, episode goes up, uh, it will not be available to view. But when can folks keep an eye out for it? Because I got to say, I, I watched the screener a couple of nights ago. And for uh, listeners out there, the movie is called Rot. And it is, I really dug it. Uh, it definitely, you know, it reminded me of Cronenberg in a couple of ways, but perhaps the main way is simply how, you know, it, it blends kind of weightier themes with bold horror. I mean, maybe, maybe subtle horror at first, but without any spoilers given, definitely bold by the end. Uh, but I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about it and its making. Yeah, um, it's it's rot R O T, not uh, the other rot uh, W R O G H T. I don't know. I, it's it's my my brain's fried right now. Um, my my parents uh, continually tell me they do not like the title. So if you uh, agree, then then my parents agree with you. Um, and you know, I a lot of the things that we talked about for the brood were things that I talked about with my team is I wanted the world, the, the movie to take place in the real world. And I wanted it to take place with complex characters that maybe didn't always make the right choice or the, the selfless choice. Um, but, and, and then had to suffer the consequences of that. And I, I, that was really important to me. I did not want to make, an homage. I did not want to make a movie that felt like, you know, it was a long lost seventies or eighties movie. I don't, I didn't want to do that. I don't particularly care for that all the time. Um, but let me, let me back up. The movie is about a grad student 
who breaks up with her boyfriend and something happens to him um, and he disappears and she kind of feels obligated to go look for him. And uh, uh, what she finds is, is maybe not really her ex-boyfriend anymore. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the broad strokes of the, the film. And, um, just to, to talk about my journey with it is much like, uh, uh, I, I, I think at this point in my filmmaking career, uh, I wrote this back in 2015. Um, I was just starting with an idea that interested me. What would happen if my roommate disappeared? Uh, and kind of explored that. And I did not know where it was going to take me when I was writing it. And I kind of, that's, I, it, it changed so much over the years of me writing it. And around 2016, we had a, a pretty significant election here in the U.S. And the... <laughs> The fear and uncertainty I felt, um, I put into the script. And, you know, the, this idea that, you know, some unknowable force is coming in and taking people over, people you know, friends, family, and changing them. And you don't know what's wrong with them. You just know that there's something off. Um, that really resonates with me. And I also really related to the relationship. You know, there are two people that met that maybe are good for each other, but one person is ready to settle down and uh, one person is focused on her work. And I kind of love that, like that selfishness of, you know, my main character's name is Madison. She is driven by her passion for psychology and she doesn't want to settle down. And, and that's where the real tenth of the, the, the whole start of the movie is, is more of a drama almost than a horror film. And through that conflict of relationship springs all of her decisions throughout the whole rest of the movie where she, you know, they break up, she breaks up with him to focus more on her studies and when he disappears it's it's like he's like clutching onto her in some way and she has to you know out of just societal obligation like i guess i'm the one to go look for him even though i broke up with him because i didn't want to deal with you know to to invest in that emotional uh energy and i thought that that was a fascinating story to explore and I related quite a bit to the main character, but I have to be honest, writing it, if the main character was a guy and he broke up with his girlfriend to focus on his work, I don't think anyone would have a problem with it. But I got so much negative feedback over and over again, every single draft where people hated her every time she broke up with her boyfriend because he loved her so much. And for some reason, people were really bothered by that. They were very bothered that she prioritized her career and her studies over him. And that was a big hurdle to get over. 
Um, but yeah, so so I much like Cronenberg and the Brood. I will always be able to look back at Rot and understand how I felt 2016 to 2020. <laughs> you know, I I am gonna know the confusion and frustration and fear uh, that Madison goes through. And because I was feeling it, I was feeling it at the time and I put it all up on screen. John, I think that's great. I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that choice uh, that your lead character makes. You know, I, I, what I appreciated about the movie is that nobody is really painted in, uh, it felt like you weren't judging the characters at all for the choices that they made early on. Like, no, nobody is a bad guy, as it were. You know, it's just... Uh, but then it's funny, you know, I, I love that the movie does work as a drama on that level before, you know, the, the, the horror of the situation sort of introduces itself into uh, the characters' lives, you know. Um, but, you know, I gotta say, it's funny. In, uh, you know, I watched it after you noted that you had chosen The Brood to discuss, and uh, given the choice in Cronenberg tonight, I, I gotta admit, I was surprised to watch Rot and realize that you would chosen the brood instead of like, uh, because I see, I totally, especially after talking with you, I see the parallels certainly, um, between the two, but also it reminded me a lot like tonally, but also, uh, just there were moments that reminded me a great deal of shivers even. So to me, oh, after sure. talking with you, especially like rot feels like, you know, it, it doesn't feel like a direct homage to any Cronenberg movie, but at the same time, it reminds me a lot of like his very early films. That's, you know, that's interesting. And, and yeah, I did not, I did not set out to make a homage. I did not set out to make my version of a Cronenberg film. I was just trying to make a story that I cared about. And uh, Cronenberg wasn't the only influence I pulled from. I, I was really influenced by Prince of Darkness, the, uh, um, uh, oh my God, Carpenter film. Jesus, why did that name escape me? Um, <laughs> and and Prince of Darkness, the like the team coming together to like fight this evil. I mean, halfway through the movie, all the friends, you know, Jesse's friends and coworkers and her friends all kind of gather to go search for him, and they don't know really how to do it or how to go about it, and they're all talking over each other and. We're kind of following them around as they are like hanging out in this apartment trying to figure out a game plan. And I kind of pulled that from Prince of Darkness. The kind of stalking aspect, Halloween was, I mean, a huge influence on me. But uh yeah, so I I I it it, it makes me happy that it doesn't feel like a direct homage, uh, because I really was just pulling from multiple influences and then trying to filter it through my own sensibility. Um, but <clears throat> sorry. Um, no, I, I, the comment you made back away is that the film didn't judge anyone. I did not want to judge anyone. And I really worked hard at the Jesse Madison. Jesse was the, the, her boyfriend that before, you know, her boyfriend before she dumped him um you know he's someone that is not career driven he's just working to pay the bills and there are people out there that just work to pay the bills and and pay uh so they can afford to enjoy things outside of work but she is 
work focused. And I think that it was, I enjoyed exploring that relationship. Of course, once we tested it with people, uh, other people were less interested in that. And so we cut out a lot of uh, the backstory. There was a lot more with just the two of them at the beginning. Um, I don't even know if I should talk about this. The movie, people haven't even seen the movie, and I'm already talking about things I cut out of it. I, I shouldn't sure. do that. <laughs> no, I'm actually fascinated now, but I, I, but I understand. Um, I, I hope, is there a possibility that you'll release a uh, longer cut later on? No, um, not to, not a, you know, because I, I, I showed, I showed the film to a lot of people. I, not, and I did that with the script as well. I had a ton of people read the script and just tear it apart. I was like, just make me cry. Make me just, just rip this apart. And I just spent, I spent over a year having people tear it apart. I'd rewrite, tear it apart. I'd rewrite. And I did the same thing in the editing room. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's tough as a writer. You kind of get tunnel vision. And it's fascinating to show an audience and see how they interpret things. Because, you know, if you don't give them all the information, they will fill in information in their brain. They'll just come up with stuff. And they'll be like, well, you know, he felt this way because of X, Y, and Z. And you're like, well, hold on. I never even said x y and z how did you even come up with that and uh so i i really valued the screening process uh that was a fun and frustrating and heartbreaking time for me um but i thought that it was very illuminating as to how the audience watched movies and i feel like i feel like that really helped me grow as a filmmaker um, so no, I, I, I'm very happy where it is. Although when it premieres on Amazon, uh, on the 19th of November, so that's next week, um, at least at the time of this recording, um, I think that it may need to be slightly censored from where it is now. Um, we there, fought there, it. There's a shot that, uh, that, that kind of blew my mind. It was in it. <laughs> yeah uh well it blew amazon's mind as well <laughs> and uh, like amazon that? was like please no and we said please uh uh so we may it may be slightly slightly tweaked for amazon um but i, but I will say and I, I wouldn't dare spoil it but that moment also does feel completely earned and it feels like you know, it's appropriate. It's entirely appropriate for that moment, and it doesn't feel exploitative. It doesn't feel crass. It feels uh, it feels completely earned by that moment and necessary. And I'd be very curious, uh, you know, because there's that moment, and then there's the moment that immediately follows it up. Um, so I, I I would be curious how the movie would exist without that 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 beat, as it were. Uh, yeah, and and that's kind of my thing that I'm wrestling with right now is is and um, I'll just I'll just I'm not going to spoil the movie, but there is some nudity in the film and none of it is salacious. None of it is meant to be um, uh, alluring, I guess. And, uh, uh, you know, some people are very squirmish about that. It's fascinating that we can have all the blood and guts in the world, but you show a little bit of nudity and people get very uptight. Um, and this is my first feature film. And so this is the first time that I have to deal with 
people outside of myself that are going, ooh, you know, this makes me uncomfortable. Normally I could be like, well, you know, tough. Um, but when you're trying to release it for a wide audience, sometimes you have to uh, make concessions, even if those concessions don't really make sense. But I'm not going to speak poorly about any streaming service that wants to stream my movie. All right. And I will say to listeners out there, definitely make certain to check this movie out. I, I really dug it quite a bit, and it definitely comes with my recommendation. Uh, I will say just a quick shout out. The entire cast is great, but Madison, the lead, is it Chris Alexandria? Yeah. Is really, really wonderful in the lead. So definitely uh, kudos for casting her and for that, you know, to the both of you for that performance because she was she was fantastic. Well, you know, I I really stressed about the casting. Um, you know, I think that indie filmmaking, you don't have a lot of money. You don't have a lot of resources. So the film kind of lives and dies on these performances. But on top of that, how we filmed it, we filmed it on the weekends over a period of months. And my biggest fear going into production was halfway through, you know, month two, uh, someone would drop out. And so I really worked hard and I had a lot of callbacks and a lot of chemistry reads to one, get the, the, the acting right. The performances had to be good. Um, but also to make sure that like these, these actors were dedicated and, and I'm so grateful for the actors I've met making this movie. Um, they, not only, you know, I, I was, I think the one great thing that I did at the beginning was I scheduled it out very carefully so that I could be like, okay, you've got the part. These are the days that we're going to need you. And then I stuck to that. Like it was, you know, embedded in concrete and we, we, they showed up every single day that we needed them. They showed up and, um, and it was a joy to, film it was weird though you know you'd you'd be down during the week you'd rehearse you'd rewrite you'd prep and then pick up the equipment friday and then saturday and sunday we were filming you know 12 hour days and then a week of downtime and then the next weekend we're back up and you know it, it was some people you you know wouldn't see for a month or two and then you know they'd show up on set and it was like a, a, a little mini reunion it was really great but uh, Chris was phenomenal and uh, continues to, uh, you know, e every time she hears some new uh, rot uh, uh, update, she, you know, texts me excitedly. So she's she's been great. And I uh, am excited to see where uh, uh, her career leads her. All right. Well, sir. Hey, I think that's just about our time. Can I ask before we go, do you have any final parting thoughts on The Brood? The first time watching it, I was kind of taken with the craziness of the story and the second time I watched it, um, I was much more drawn to the sadness. And you think of how many broken people are in the movie. The movie is made up of people that are, are searching desperately for some semblance of happiness and, and sanity. And, you know, his, his, you know, father-in-law comes in, uh, and his and and is it his father-in-law now i'm now i'm blanking on the specifics but his his uh father-in-law comes in to what what is it it's 
His mom and dad also divorced? Or is his, his wife's father and mother divorced and his mother was taking care of the kid the mother died and then her ex-husband comes to help rearrange the funeral and goes to the house just because a nostalgia uh hit a wave hit him and he was overwhelmed when he got there and he's sitting in the living room you know, and he's like, you know, I, I thought it'd be okay if I came here and I, I made a mistake and he's, you know, bursting into tears before this thing attacks him. And I, I was just so much more taken with that emotion of it. So I guess my final thought is that anyone who says that these films are devoid of emotion, um, they need to give it a, another, another watch. No, I would agree with that entirely. And uh, now, can I ask, where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Oh, man. Well, uh, uh, Rot is going to be on Amazon. I am on Twitter at AJ Alberghetti, and I believe Instagram is the same handle. Uh, that's A-J-A-L-B-O-R-G-H-E-T-T-I. Really long and complicated, so no one can find me, I guess. That was my uh, original intent. Um, and uh, those are kind of the main areas I, I hang out in. Literally just followed you on Twitter as soon as you spelled that out. So I'm just Oh, perfect. It's <laughs> so it over. And um, right now I'm kind of working on two different scripts. One is a smaller, very weird movie uh, that I have been working on for over 10 years. And I... Man, I really hope I get to make it because I'm there's something there that keeps drawing me back and I keep digging deeper and deeper into it every time I, I open up that script file. And I really would love to play around in this world. Um, so hopefully that's next for me. Um, and then I've got a much bigger script that I just wrote um, that is kind of an adventure horror creature feature. Oh, nice. Now, would you say you have any kind of influences there, or uh, or is this just uh, this is just something that you want to get out? Like this is, uh, or are you, are you drawing from any specific influences? I guess I should say. For the smaller film, it's it's kind of a maybe a Charlie Kaufman esque horror movie. It's it goes in some weird, twisted places. Um, and then uh, for the the kid adventure film, it's uh, I guess it's kind of the Goonies, but I don't want it to be. It's like the Goonies mixed with Jaws, mixed with uh, I don't know something else. You you had me at Goonies meets Jaws. Like there, there's you don't even need to say anything after that. I'm sold. Yeah, and it. Uh, that's the first script that I wrote where I did not worry about the budget. And boy, I had fun writing this. You know, there a lot of people die. There are going to be a lot of people dead in this movie. And I had so much fun. <laughs> I will say, yeah, there is something about it. Like I, you know, for the first 10 years after I got out of high school, everything that I wrote was like with an eye toward, could I actually make this myself? Could I raise the money to make this, you know? The first time I was like, you know what? I want to write a $70 million gothic horror movie. You know, 
it's so much fun. It's just so much fun to write with a completely blank canvas, you know, so uh, with no limitations whatsoever. So I, I completely get that feeling. <laughs> Yeah, no, no worrying like, oh, can we afford a cop car? You're like, uh, there's a dozen cop cars. Who cares? <laughs> All right. So, hey, thank you again so much for uh, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I had a blast chatting with you. I, hey, I had a blast chatting with you as well. And uh, uh, have a good rest of your, your day or night. You're in Florida. So night. Southern Ohio currently. Uh, so, which is uh, Ohio, kind of, Ohio. Kind of echoey right now, but I'll be returning to Florida soon in my my typical uh, recording place. So I won't quite sound like I'm in a tomb anymore with all of the uh, the echoes. So uh, I yeah. think it adds something. You you could have played that off as like it, it's a an audio effect that you're putting you're trying out. Oh, totally. I'm hey, I'm recording in a crypt. You know, blah ha ha ha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just corny enough to try something like that. So thank you. Next episode I record, I'm totally pointing that out. Perfect. All right, and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Screamatics, and I'm at Jinx1981. That's J-I-N-X-1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Dr. Rackham, I'd like to thank you all for coming this afternoon. I believe your bus is waiting outside now.